Fantastic. Uh, so uh, in your pew rack in front of you is a little white card. Why don't you grab that white card real quick? And uh, we're going to do a couple things for it. Actually, those little white cards are there every Sunday morning, and they're there for you to use for a variety of uh, reasons or different ways. So I just want to put it in your hands this morning so that uh, if you want to use it, uh, be encouraged to. We had this like really big supply of those white cards, white paper. So uh, don't be afraid to use them. Uh, you can write a prayer request on them if you want information. If you don't know what that QR code is, that thing in the pew, uh, and if you're just sort of not a QR code person, don't carry a smartphone, you can use the old-fashioned paper to request prayer, to request information, to uh, communicate in any way with us. There's a box where you can drop offerings, as Gladys mentioned, but you can also drop these white pieces of paper into that box on your way out. I want to encourage you to use them in a few ways this morning because I have an extra minute or two. Um, last week we did the FAQs, and so uh, we want to encourage questions, I do, along the way of life and not just one Sunday a year or every several years. So if you ever have a question, a hard question, a question about the scriptures, about God, about anything, you're welcome to just submit it. You can drop it in the box any Sunday, any day, any time. And that's not the only way we can communicate, but that's just one way. And uh, you can put your name on it, or it can be anonymous. Um, so I want to encourage you to do that. We also talked last week, uh, just a mention in reference to or in answering one of the questions that we dealt with, uh, something called Celebrate Recovery. Someone said, I've got this besetting sin. It's just been with me, and it's just haunted me, and uh, been with me my whole life. How do I shake that? How can I? Uh, can God help me? So uh, some of us have been talking about a ministry called Celebrate Recovery that helps people with addictions. Uh, so if that's something that you may be interested in, you're welcome to just anonymously drop that in there. And then um, Gladys, did you mention uh, Kingdom Club Musical? A little, just a little bit. I dashed out to fix my mic. So uh, last night was spectacular. It was absolutely spectacular here in the sanctuary. Uh, we had a Kingdom Club musical in person, live, kids up on the platform, parents and people from the congregation, the community, and the pews, uh, sort of celebrating and worshiping God. And I was reminded of the uh, just really large number of people that it takes to pull that off. It's not just Gladys, it's not just Christy and Melissa, but it's dozens of people behind the scenes doing everything from washing dishes to um, fixing meals, to doing sound tech stuff, to creating casts and uh, props and things. So a ton of people. So want to remind us while we're here this morning that as a congregation, if you're not invested in some way with the gifts God has given you, not just the money or the assets, but the gifts, the talents, the skills, the resources, in some way in the ministry of the larger church, there's a place for whatever gifts and skills you have. Uh, Sue mentioned the, uh, the scaffolding that's going to go up, the new roof that we're getting. I mean, there's a contractor and people behind the scenes in the church who are making that happen. Thank you, Carrie and Paul and John and others. Um, so lots of ways, whether it's art or clerical work or teaching or shepherding or project management, there's a place for your gifts in the life of the church if you haven't found that ministry, I encourage you to do so. Uh, you can uh, suggest something with those white cards, all right? Uh, put it, or if you have a question, how can I get plugged in? How can I serve? How can I be a part of the mission and the ministry of First Pres in a more active way? Do it. Yeah. All right. 
That's my advertisements. Uh, let's pray. God, we've delighted in singing and in uh, listening and in expressing. Uh, we want to be united with you in fellowship uh, in a way that uh, appropriately recognizes who you are and uh, in ways that we are able to see you, bring you glory, and be affected by you, by your presence and your power. We ask that as we open your word this morning that you would give us eyes that are good to see, hearts that are good soil, ears that can hear, and that you would grow in us things that are pleasing to you and that bring glory to you and that bring delight and joy to us. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, we finished the Gospel of Mark, and uh, that was a good experience over the past year and a half for many of us, most of us. A few of you felt like I just couldn't remember some of the substantive things from Mark and express that to me. So we're actually going to do it again, and we're going to start this morning on the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. No. 90% of Americans say that they believe in God or some kind of God or some higher power, roughly 90%. About 50% of Americans are members of churches, and that number is in decline, church membership is. Our society as a whole is becoming increasingly diverse, diverse ethnically, culturally, religiously. A smaller and smaller percentage of people in America identify as Christians or subscribe to Christianity. What is on the rise is uncertainty about God. The question with which more and more people wrestle is when they care to, and I believe that sooner or later all people will care to or be interested in God, is what is God like? What is God like? Who is God What is God like? And so how about for uh, starters this morning as we begin, not the Gospel of Mark, but a new kind of series, how about we consider those questions, address the world's questions, discuss those kinds of questions, maybe respond to those questions. Who, what, and how is God? It's fairly easy to agree agree that God is other, that God is wholly different, that God is not like us, God is other. It's fairly easy to agree that God is spirit, uh, that God is different than us, and that God is not a physical being around us. From there, we can take another step and agree that God is omnipresent, God is everywhere. God, the one true God, is not confined to space or to a building or to a room like this. God is not bound by gravity or by time zones like we are. God is not limited to time or space. God is everywhere. And we can agree that God is omniscient. God knows everything. God never went to school. God never got an education. God never went to college. He has no degrees or diplomas because God doesn't need any. God already knows everything. 
all of the great discoveries that have been made, all the great discoveries that are being made in labs today and behind telescopes, all of the great discoveries that will be made, God already knows. God knew them in the past. He knows them today. He will know them in the future. You can't hide stuff from God. God knows everything. He's omniscient. And God is also omnipotent, infinitely powerful. Imagine that. We're hearing more and more about the strength and the power of nuclear weapons. Those are nothing to God. Asteroids hitting the earth we mentioned last week. That is nothing to God. God can uh, change the orbit of planets. God can create universes. Once upon a time, there was a scientist who said, challenged God, said, I can, go, I can do anything you can do. I can go head to head with you. I can create life. I can cre-. God says, okay, well, let's do it. Let's go, let's go at it, mano a mano. So the scientist scoops down and picks up some dirt, and God says, no, 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 no. You got to make your own dirt, buddy. Got to make your own dirt. God is other, God is spirit, God is omnipresent, God is omniscient, God is omnipotent. Christian theologians would go on to tell us that God is infinite or eternal, always existing, having no beginning and no end. God is immutable, God doesn't change, he cannot be changed. God is self-sufficient. This is a big one that people often forget. God has no needs. God doesn't need us. God is self-sufficient. God is holy, meaning God is upright and pure and always right. God is glorious. God is infinitely beautiful. And we could go on, but in all of those things, still something is lacking, something important that we read about throughout the scriptures and that we have come to know ourselves in different ways and which is maybe stated most clearly near the back of the Bible in a little letter that we know as First. John, the first epistle of John, where are written these words, God is love. God is love. And all of a sudden we have a word and a term and a characteristic and an attribute that doesn't pertain to physics or cosmology or philosophy, but which rather describes a being who is personal. And it describes how that personal being is. There was a time in American politics not too long ago when the meaning of the word is was up for debate. Its meaning was called into question. Do you remember that? Anyone remember that? What is, is? Is refers to something state of being. Is describes a thing's status or its nature or its character, its unchangeable reality. For example, I am white. I am Caucasian. I am male. Someone else may be Latino or Tongan or Asian or black. That is an unchanging reality about that person. God has unchanging realities too. The scriptures say God is love. And this is how God has always been. God was love. God is love. God will always be love as God has always been. As long as God has been around, God has been love. 
When God hovered over the abyss and over the darkness, God was love. Before that, God was love. At the end of time, God will be love. That means that love didn't start with you or me or with my parents or your parents or our grandparents or any one of them along our ancestral tree. Before all them were, God was, and God was love. God was love before there was time and space. And if that's true, and that is true, then one might ask, who did God love before there was anyone to love? What was happening back there? Well, if God is love and there was no one else to love, then the only one available for God to love would be God himself because God was the only one who was there. There was no one else to love. And yes, that sounds a little bit selfish that God would love God's self and God tells us not to be selfish and so we've got a little bit of a conundrum. How does that work? Well, remember that God exists in what biblical theologians call three co-equal persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So when we talked about God, when we talk about God, we're never talking about someone who has been by himself, God's self. God has never been lonely. God has never been in isolation somehow. And I know this is mysterious talk and hard to wrap our limited minds around it, and yet it's true. God is, get this, one in essence, but distinct in personality. The theologians have said, one in essence, but distinct in personality. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. And so God has always had someone to love, but that someone was and is within God's self, and God so loved God's self, and God was very good at that. And this God made within God's self what the scriptures call the Godhead, which sometimes we sing about and we see in different places in the scriptures. And so God is this triune being of love. According to the scriptures, as best we human beings can put into human words and wrap our minds around, this being who loves within God's own being. Are you with me? God is love. God has always been love. God has always loved. God has always expressed God's love to God's self, within God's self, within that reality. Now, turning to chapter 5 of John's Gospel, beginning at verse 16. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his own defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, daddy, Abba, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives him life, even so the son gives life to him who he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Father, the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And we see in this passage a sort of dance, at least here, between the Father and the Son of mutuality and love 
and giving and desire to honor the other and to glorify the other and to bring attention and publicity to the other. The son can do, do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Whoever doesn't honor the son doesn't honor the father who sent him. And there's more in John chapter 3, verse 35. John the Baptist says the father loves the son. In John 10, verse 17, Jesus says the father loves the son. In John 17, Jesus says God the father loves the son. In John 15, God, Jesus says the father loves the son. God's relationship with God's self is love. This is who God is and therefore what God does. Now, let's, uh, I want to take a sidebar for just a moment from that. We'll jump back on track in a second. What the scriptures mean by love is not like. It's not too like. Though we use that word, we use love in that way all of the time. You love pizza, you love ice cream, you love your job, you love sports, you love the warriors. What are the things that we love and that we say that we love? The list could go on and on, but we would do well to stop using love in that way in our vocabulary because it clutters what the scriptures really, really, really mean. To like is to have a strong affinity for something, to delight in something, to be obsessed by something. To love is wholly different. We should also note that the most common word used for love in the Greek scriptures does not refer to romance or physical affection or those gushy feelings that one gets in 7th grade or 10th grade or whenever. Rather, the biblical word most often translated love and the word we are talking about this morning means to act on behalf of another person's well-being. Not only to wish someone well, but to take action toward and for another person's good, to bless another person, to give them our attention and devotion, to bring them goodness and joy, to meet that other person's needs, their truest needs. This is to love, again, to act on behalf of another person's well-being. It's not not limited to feelings, though it includes feelings, but rather is an act of the will to intend and to do, to love. And this is God. God is love. This is how God's always been. God was love. God is love. God always will be love. And God always has been But God created. We talked about this last week in FAQs. Why did God create? God was existing in this, and as this loving being, was that not enough? Why did God create? The creation account, which the Bible contains in chapter 1 of Genesis, and then also another in chapter 2, and we can call them collectively the creation accounts. We talked about that last week, that those don't necessarily, are not necessarily written in order to explain when and how God created, but rather who and why God created. And following that thinking, one could easily see how God, who is love and who continually loves God's self, being 
the other members of the Godhead might want to extend God's love further because God is overflowing with love. The triune God was a sort of love fest going on. And so God created other beings to love out of the abundance of love within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. There's this overflow that had no other way to express itself. And so theologians say that God created in love, by love, and to love. You read through the progression of Genesis 1, God created this, and then this, and then this, and day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. And each time God says it was good, it was good, it was good. But underlying that is this God who is love and who is creating out of love, in love, and with love, and out of the abundance and overflow of love. One might also conclude if one reads Ephesians chapter 1, don't have time to go into depth there this morning. But God talks about creating in order to bring glory to Jesus, his son. And the son's function is to bring glory to the father. And there's this mutual pushing and delivering of glory to the other. God is love. God expresses that love within God's self and to the other persons of God, and God expresses that love beyond God's self, and God can do no other because God is love. God can do no other because God is love, and I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but first let's be clear about who God isn't. It's possible that because uh, Jesus called God Father and because Jesus invited his apprentices to call God Father and to know God as Father, that when any of us, particularly as a child, and has an earthly father, biological father, an adopted father, a stepfather, a foster father, a father figure in our lives in some certain way that we might think, consciously or unconsciously, that God the Father is in any way or is in some way like our earthly fathers. Are you following that? Every one of us has a father or some fathers, some form of father in our lives. And so Jesus says, uh, call God Father as I call God Father. And he continually referred to his father as Father, Daddy, Abba. It's possible, particularly as a child, and we were all children at one point, that a child, that a young person, that each of us might transfer to one's understanding of God the Father what one sees or experiences or has seen or has experienced in and about one's earthly father. And that's not always a good thing. On earth and in our lives, there are many good fathers. Many of us have had good fathers, faithful, kind, generous, and loving fathers. And others of us may have experienced less than that. Fathers who were not virtuous, fathers who were not faithful, fathers who were not loving. Many of us, some of us, a few of us, in varying degrees, had fathers, biological fathers, adopted fathers, foster fathers, stepfathers, father figures in our lives, pastors, mothers, who were aloof. They were present but seemed to be in their own world, often thinking about other things, not engaged, not caring, not attentive or loving. Or who were absent, they weren't even present for whatever reason, for a variety of reasons. They weren't around, they weren't available. Maybe it, 
There was no communication at all, only occasional contact and otherwise radio silence. They were off doing their own things, off with other people, off doing their projects, off expressing their own ambitions, not present, maybe through no fault of their own. There have been fathers and mothers who have been alcoholic, and some people had fathers or mothers who were chained to the bottle or other addictions. They were unpredictable, therefore, and erratic and maybe even dangerous to oneself. And it's possible that some people as a child might transfer that idea of father to Jesus, Daddy, Abba. And there have been fathers that some of us had who were angry for any variety of reasons because they themselves were hurt or because of disappointment or betrayal or unmet expectations or some injustice. And the child ends up as the recipient of collateral damage due to that anger. And there have been, sadly, grievously, Unfortunately, fathers who are, have been abusive. Some parents are simply abusive verbally, physically, emotionally, and otherwise. The opposite of love. The opposite of love. And in a worst-case scenario, a young person's first impressions of God the Father or understanding of God could derive from their father on earth or a mother. And I'm not saying that's the way things are for any of us here or all of us. I'm only saying that's a possibility and that probably is the way things work to some degree for some people and with some people as children. And when things are formed in us as children, they tend to stick around. If not here, then here. It's not unnatural or a surprise or unexpected that one's image or ideas or thinking about a father would be transferred to God. In Jewish thinking... A mother or a father represents God to a child, at least and especially in that child's early years. Hence, of the Ten Commandments, honor thy father and mother. Partly because they are your father and mother, but partly because they represent God in the child's early life. But God is not like that. And that's why Jesus told this very important parable. It was actually three parables, and we know most clearly the uh, climactic one. We call it the parable of the prodigal son, but it's really the parable about a loving father. Because Jesus needed those images of father to be reversed, those tainted images from earth. Of course, there may be times in one's life, or maybe I should say there will be times in one's life when God doesn't seem loving. Times when, we, when all we sense are suffering and heartbreak and questions and unanswered prayers, and we blame those on God. We call God responsible. We treat God as responsible for those. But as we read in the book of Proverbs, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. Or the book of Hebrews that we've been reading on Friday mornings with the men. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens the one he accepts as his child. Our earthly parents disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Or when James, like the brother of Jesus, likely the brother of Jesus, opens his letter by saying that God allows us to experience trials because that's the only way a person can learn or obtain 
the gift or the virtue of perseverance, which the Apostle Paul says over in the book of Romans leads to character, which leads to hope. Oh, that's how those things come about. And the scriptures teach that with God, that God is with us in our suffering. And further, that God suffers with us as we suffer. God and Jesus, both described in the scriptures as compassionate, which comes from the Latin cum passio, which means to suffer with. And as Paul wrote again to the Romans, we know that in all things God works for good. In all things, in all things, God is working for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. We know that. Sure, God gets angry at injustice and rebellion and persistent disobedience. Would we want God to not? God gets angry at injustice and rebellion and disobedience, sure, but even in God's anger or sometimes even in God's seeming absence, God is love. Paul wrote to the Romans in another place, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, while we were still in our sins, while we were continuing to sin, while we were oblivious to sin, while we didn't really care whether we sinned or not. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus' own familiar words, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten beloved son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. God the Father didn't send God the Son whom he loved reluctantly or half-heartedly or begrudgingly, but rather out of love, in love, because of love, because God is love and therefore God could do no other. God would do no other. And now back to where we started in chapter 4 of 1 John, John's first epistle, where we read, where we read. Dear friends, let's love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love God, does not love, doesn't know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Say it with me. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. God cannot act, behave, decide, or reign in ways that are not loving. It is not possible because to do so would be out of God's character. This is not possible for God. One of the questions that sometimes gets asked is a frequently asked difficult question is, what can God not do? God cannot act in love. There you go. There's one answer. It's just not possible because God is love. Whatever distorted or incomplete images or ideas one may have had 
or still has about the character or the will of God by God's grace, may those false ideas or that false thinking be set aside for the truth as revealed in the scriptures and is revealed in Jesus and God's act of sending Jesus to us, to the world, for us to die in our place. And with this truth before us and only with this truth, only with this truth is our foundation, the stage is set or beginning to be set for us to explore in the coming weeks what it means to live in God and to live in love and to live into the first of our values, loving all people unconditionally. Because that is the beginning, that's where it begins, that is the foundation. And if you try to start somewhere else, you're lost in your toast and you've got nothing to stand on. But if that is where you begin... We've got everything to stand on and a foundation that cannot be shaken and the answer to all of the world's challenges and questions. Our study coming up begins, and it must begin, in the character of God, in the heart of God, in the will of God, in the reality of God, and the overflow of such in God sending His beloved Son, to us, for us. May this be so. Let's pray. May you be honored and worshiped and glorified among us. Father, Son, and Spirit, triune God, full of and overflowing with love. May you be honored and glorified and worshiped, adored and revered among us, in us and through us. For your love poured out to us, expressed to us in the sending of your Son, the giving of your beloved as a gift as appropriation and expiation, satisfaction, payment, ransom, gift in our place, dying that we might live. We thank you and we praise you. We confess our ongoing rebellion and disobedience and unfaithfulness, even as we acknowledge that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are humbled, humble us. We hear, help us to hear. We love, help us to love. You, the wellspring of love, in whose name we pray, amen.